This morning, we are returning back to our theme of texts of terror that we had been talking about through the month of October. So we'll be in texts of terror this week and next week before Thanksgiving. So the premise of this series is to talk about how we are often faced with terrorizing portrayals of the Bible and uses of the Bible. And the why behind it is because even if you're not reading scripture directly, you're still impacted by it. You're shaped by it. You actively encounter it just by being immersed in our culture. Some of us may feel like the Bible has a pretty significant role in our life, personally wrestling with texts or going to scripture for comfort. And in other cases, your main interactions with the Bible may be secondhand, maybe um, scripture being quoted in religious rhetoric, things like that. The influence of the Bible is unavoidable for better and for worse. And because of this, we can all play a role in helping shift the narrative away from terrorizing applications and towards beautiful ones. We contribute to the narrative. We have influence. So this week, our topic is talking about the Bible as story or through the lens of storytelling. This may seem like an obvious lens to look through, but I'd argue that more often than not, the Bible gets portrayed like it's some historically accurate diary or a documentary of the narrative of God's people unfolding as it happened. Instead, we rarely get authors writing as the story is unfolding live in front of their eyes. We have traditions that are passed down, myth and origin stories, parables and poetry, We have authors grounded in their present experiences and circumstances, looking back and telling the story from their vantage point after the fact. Why is this important? Well, when accuracy isn't the main principle we have to be married to, our interpretations of the Bible are far more free. We aren't trapped by needing to land in a place of absolute certainty. Any attempt to say that the Bible is clear or simple can shift instead to an acceptance of nuance. Even the concept of something being true doesn't necessarily need to mean that it's factual. The main questions we can start to ask are things like, why was this story included in a holy book of wisdom? What does it say about God? What does it say about humanity? We can ask when and where did this happen or what historical figures are involved. All of those lead to interesting conclusions. But wondering, did this happen exactly as the text said it did, isn't a threat to the Bible when you can gather just as much meaning from a myth as you can from a historical account. Both reading the Bible directly and encountering interpretations out in the wild have potential to bring about deeper meaning in our lives. Or we can feel trapped in a dead end of certainty. What use is curiosity if there's supposed to be one set conclusion, one set narrative of events? Embracing that the Bible is an effort of storytelling can fuel the curiosity and hope that we naturally have and lead us to more beautiful interpretations, which is what we're going to talk about today. There are a few different aspects of storytelling that we're going to use to guide us this morning. The first one I've already started to touch on, but First one is, overall, storytelling is about meaning, not about accuracy. We may think that historical account is what grounds our stories, but typically it isn't. And so why would this be any different for the authors of the Bible? When it comes to the Bible, the intent was not entirely record-keeping, but tradition-shaping, passing on some elements of history 
and passing on sources of meaning and communal values. For most of us, accuracy isn't actually the ground that we stand on. It's not what we're always in search of. But we are in search of meaning, and we are in search of community. In communal meaning, collective remembering, this is what holds the Bible together. In her book, Inspired, Rachel Held Evans gives this example of how odd it would be if we, at birthday celebrations, gathered and just read someone's birth certificate and cheers and called it a day. Instead, we tend to gather and remember collectively. Remember earlier this year how we took that trip together and it was really wonderful? Remember when so-and-so was a baby and they did all of these ridiculous things? Remember when? If your family is anything like mine, certain family members will retell stories over and over and over again, so that even if you weren't present, you remember it like you were. Certain people will also get in heated arguments claiming that their version of the account is the right one. Over time, the memories may get muffled and certain details may change, but the meaning is still present. The laughs and the challenges and the values upheld. Sometimes certain family members or particular moments in your history may be elevated to be legend-like, larger than life. The blurring of details and highlighting of people and events doesn't make the stories any less meaningful. It makes them more meaningful, even if by some metrics they may not be as accurate. The act of storytelling helps us name meaning in our lives. What stories do you tell about yourself, about your past, about your community? How has the retelling brought about deeper meaning? Those who compiled the collection of stories that we have in scripture today were asking the same questions. What stories do we tell about ourselves? What stories do we tell about God? We are always filtering our own experiences, and I think often we talk about filtering as if it's a bad thing. It's just a human thing. And it's exactly what the many authors across scripture needed to do in order to pass along a, me a message that could communicate the sources of meaning that they found. Our second element of storytelling is that storytelling isn't neutral, it's nuanced. When we read stories in scripture, there is an agenda behind the words. The authors, to no one's surprise, have intended that deeper meaning be found in the narrative. As with most storytelling, we have this blend of remembering and present realizations. I've been thinking of this as the difference between a news report and a memoir. This doesn't diminish the meaning found in the text. It makes the text even richer. That human perspectives and personal pains and victories that have happened since the event are all wrapped up in the accounts that we end up with. Accepting the layers of nuance in scripture encourages us to think about the vantage point of the authors. At times, the circumstances of the author's immediate reality shapes the storytelling even more profoundly than the details of the past events they're trying to recount. For an example, Old Testament authors and scribes were often writing in the context of exile, trying to preserve an identity for the people of Israel in the midst of crisis and the unknown. So you're going to see identity-affirming statements and core values poured in. You'll see a message of God is faithful, woven into even war stories or accounts of destruction, which may feel really odd for us to read, because that was the identity-stabilizing message that needed to be told. God is worthy of worship, and God is faithful. 
Considering the vantage point of the story lets the Bible be more nuanced, more human, even more intricate and interesting. In some settings, I think the Bible can be painted as this neutral or pure account that we have to draw meaning out of. But this doesn't acknowledge all of the layered, sometimes conflicting, meanings that are already present in the text. The mix of reality and hope, exaggeration and precise account are all over its pages. The writers behind the text told stories in search of meaning, and their conclusions are intertwined with the details of the stories that were preserved. There wasn't an on-the-ground news crew that was dictating things as they were unfolding, trying to be as objective as possible. Creating meaning and shaping tradition was the motive, and so the authors used the act of storytelling to communicate the conclusions that they had come to about God and about life. It doesn't necessarily mean that the authors are unreliable narrators. They're just human. The Bible provides a model of generation of writers, interpreters, and translators who search for meaning as they wrote, interpreted, and translated. Often they impose their own conclusions on the word of the text, making certain heroes heroes and certain ones villains. Funny enough, God seems to fall into both of those categories depending on the story at hand. Some really good underdog stories, one-sided accounts of triumph, four different gospel books that tell stories of Jesus. Sometimes they align and sometimes they conflict. Again, we have more questions to ask. What did these stories mean for the people who originally heard them? What do these stories mean for our formation today? The answers don't have to be the same. It's not a direct copy and paste. A Bible that is both human and inspired encourages far more questioning and wondering, sitting intimately in the nuance instead of pretending like the words are objective or even universal. Understanding scripture, whatever that means, isn't some multiple choice test, it's a conversation. Jewish interpretations often get this in ways that I think we miss. The nuance and all of the layers of meaning and context, even contradictions, invite questions and conversation. It's a starting point, not an end game. The next feature that we'll talk about um, of storytelling is that storytelling points to the questions we are asking as much as the conclusions that we have come to. So with this idea of storytelling pointing to questions, I started to think about the way that Jesus told parables throughout the gospel accounts. There were stories that, these were stories that Jesus would use to teach those around him, often about the kingdom of God or the way that we should be living in community. Most of these stories, um, ones like the sower sowing seeds, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, turned some type of common logic or really religious reasoning on its head. And most of them were told in response to questions. In the accounts that we have, Jesus typically engaged in conversations through telling stories or asking questions in return. This makes me think that biblical stories and question asking go hand in hand. Both storytelling and asking questions propel us deeper into meaning. Clarity and meaning are not the same thing. Jesus would tell these parables, and often the response was even more confusion, not more clarity, even more questions. This goes back to the idea that the best interpretations of scripture, of words of God, invite conversation and wondering. They don't just offer one right answer to be learned. 
thinking about how storytelling points us to questions also has me thinking about um, Natasha's message from last week. So if you weren't here, we had a guest speaker who's a chaplain out in California join us from afar, and her message was wonderful. Um, and I would definitely encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. But Natasha voiced a question that she has heard from her patients that's a pretty common one. Why did God allow this to happen? And while we think of our context as being vastly different from the ancient authors of the Bible, I think this is one of the fundamental questions that stands the test of time. Why did God allow this to happen is all over scripture. In the midst of suffering, people across time have had similar wonderings about God's presence. So as I was listening to Natasha and thinking about this week, I wrote out a little flow chart diagram thing that we'll put up on the screen for you now so you get a little peek at my iPad doodles. <laughs> so thinking about this, we have both the ancient authors and our fellow readers today. Again, this may not be actual readers of the Bible, but just people who are surrounded by the influence of the Bible, which is all of us. In our trauma and our search for identity, which Natasha named for us, this central question is why did God allow this to happen? And we have a lot of different potential conclusions that we can come to. A really common one that we see in scripture is that God is the source of all things. So that means that in suffering is included. We have language like God gives and takes away. This isn't the only conclusion presented in scripture, but it's a big one. And just because this is in the Bible, it doesn't need to mean that we accept it as truth. I don't believe that God is the source of suffering, but I do believe that God can be present in all things, including suffering. And when I started to think about it more, I realized that these ideas of either God has to be the source of suffering included, or God can just be present in all things, including suffering, that these aren't really the landing places. There are deeper conclusions that come out of our questioning. A common ground that we can land on is that God is present. God cares about justice. God is involved and responsive. All of these counter both ancient and modern envisionings of God as a distant, impartial, unmoved mover. In our questioning, we can come to different conclusions than what the Bible presents. What is presented as true in one story does not need to be applied across the board to all circumstances. We can use the questions being asked to point us to deeper meaning that does feel more true across circumstances. Things like God is present, God cares about justice, and God is involved and responsive. Our last element for today when we're talking about storytelling is that storytelling encourages us to trust our intuitions. The stories that we resonate with typically follow set formats or expectations. Even with cliffhangers or plot twists, we still come to expect cliffhangers and plot twists from certain screenwriters or authors or styles of storytelling. In the Bible, the ancient authors had particular formats that their immediate audiences would have been familiar with as well origin stories that look a lot like the creation narratives in Genesis, flood narratives that mirror the story of Noah, poetry and psalms would have followed an expected form, which actually we talked about Psalm 88 a few weeks ago, and that makes it even more interesting because it's the psalm of lament that doesn't follow the form. It doesn't end with hope like most do. 
The theological hymns of the New Testament would have had similar contemporary writings, even lineage accounts, the long list of names that we tend to skip over, I know I tend to skip over, would have revealed important connections. When we get wrapped up in the stories being told in the formats that we're used to, we're able to follow our intuitions about what will happen next. Children do this really naturally. I've watched my son Oliver do this when we're reading books or watching a movie. The lighting dims and certain music plays and you know you're gonna get an appearance from the villain. The music is lighter and the characters are happy and you start to feel more at peace. I was listening to an interview recently between uh, theologians and authors, Trip Fuller, Brian McLaren, and Tom Ord. And they were talking about how dangerous it is that, in certain religious con- that certain religious conclusions force us to question our intuition when it comes to our understanding of God. I think this can happen when we're told that there's one right way to read the Bible. We have this gut-level longing for God who is good. And yet when the storytelling element of the Bible is forgotten about, when accuracy and certainty and history are the main concerns, We're taught to doubt our intuition that God is good. Or we have to doubt our intuition about what being good or loving looks like. Suddenly, the most loving thing becomes fire and brimstone fear tactics. People are conditioned to see instilling fear and casting judgment as forms of love. Intuitively, we know that's not right. We know that's not loving. We can question our intuition and suddenly a loving God is okay with hate. But in the most beautiful interpretations of the Bible, we are taught to and encouraged to trust our intuitions that God is good, that goodness looks like goodness and love looks like love. We don't have to suspend intuition when we come to the text. We can trust our gut. We can trust our best hopes for God and for community when we read the stories of the Bible. And because there are texts of terror in the Bible, trusting our intuition that God is good throughout the entire story, not just in the highlights reel, requires some wrestling and some critique. What do we do with the stories that don't exactly paint God in a redeeming light? So I wanted to end with talking about one of these stories, an example here that was submitted when we originally sent out a survey asking for your input on texts of terror. And this is the story of Job. And I just want to start by being fully transparent. I have never really heard a satisfying interpretation of Job. And at the same time, viewing it through a storytelling lens, not as an account of history, has actually released me from needing to find a satisfying interpretation of Job. So the book of Job at a glance, which I wish I could have a more concise Sparknotes version of this, because it's a very odd story. Job is seen as being this blameless and upright man, is what the Bible says. He was a wealthy man with a great deal of possessions and a large family, and he was faithful to God. In a couple of very strange exchanges, God points out to another character, the Satan, just how faithful and good Job is, and Satan claims that, God, or that Job is only righteous because God has blessed him. If Job's life falls apart, Job will curse God, is the conclusion he comes to. So, in one of the strangest points of scripture for me, God hands over Job to Satan. Job loses everything, the children, the servants, the animals, his possessions, he loses his health and is suddenly covered in sores. 
The bulk of the book is a back and forth between Job and his very unhelpful friends who are trying to grapple with whether God is just, whether God rules the world according to justice, and if so, what Job must have done to deserve such punishment and wrath from God. Job maintains his innocence and his faithfulness the whole time and goes on this emotional roller coaster of wishing he was never born to arguing with God and doubting that justice could exist. God responds by taking Job through a tour of the cosmos, the beginnings of the earth and all of the intricate elements of creation to show Job the limits of his own perspective. He counters the portrayal of justice that was really common at the time that Job's friends have been arguing about the strict idea that good things happen to righteous people and suffering happens to sinful people. He shows that the world is far more wild and complex than that. Eventually, God rebukes Job's friends and restores Job's health, family, and possessions. It reads like a play, a poetic dialogue. And it's difficult. I wonder if anyone has encountered this story before and thought, this is difficult. Job's entire premise is drawing upon the central question that I named for us earlier. Why did God allow this to happen? Why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And the story doesn't really answer the question. It brings up even more questions. How does justice operate in the world? What does God's control look like? Is God good and just? When we look at Job as a wisdom book, a story I think could easily start with once upon a time, although it would be an awful children's book, the question can zoom out from being, why did God invite Satan to disrupt this historical figure's life? We zoom out to actually, what was the author trying to say about God's relationship with suffering as a whole? Rachel Held Evans in Inspired, the book I mentioned earlier, writes, so what does the story of Job say about wisdom? Well, for one thing, it favors the wisdom of those who have actually suffered over those who merely speculate about it. It favors the wisdom of those who have actually suffered over those who merely speculate about it. God stays present with Job. God casts aside his friend's ideas that Job must be sinful and bad to have deserved such a fate. God points to the complexity of creation. God blesses Job. These are all really important pieces of God's character in the story. And it's okay to not accept a God who would hand someone over to suffering as a litmus test, to teach them a lesson, or out of sheer curiosity. I'm not sure which one of those is worse. Vince has mentioned this in previous messages, but we can receive tradition, critique it, and pass it on in its most beautiful life-giving form. We have permission to come to different conclusions than the author of the introduction of Job. We can move beyond that author's imagination for what God's role in suffering is. When Job is a wisdom story, instead of a historical account, it's easier to piece apart the author's own involvement and conclusions in the text, namely that God must have been the source of suffering for Job, since Job was so righteous and faithful and bad things happen anyway. We don't have to apply Job across the board. We don't have to live into the terrorizing application that God must use suffering as a litmus test of our faith to teach us a lesson or out of sheer curiosity. We don't have to accept that. 
We can look to the story for more questions we could be asking instead of more answers we should be arriving at. We've talked about this before, but we can also place Job in this bullseye or dartboard approach that I've mentioned as a helpful tool for navigating stories like this. In this approach, Jesus is at the center, and then stories that echo Jesus' words are the next ring out. Stories of the early church are the next rings out, and you get this, um, this dartboard approach where the center holds the most weight. Jesus holds the most weight. And in that method of interpreting, stories like Job or Noah and the flood wouldn't hold as much influence because they don't seem to align with the God that Jesus presents. We can receive the beautiful stories of the Bible. We can receive the troubling narratives as well. We can trust our intuition and critique what feels terrorizing, shifting the narrative away from terror and toward what is redemptive for all. I'd like to spend some time in prayer with you all. So if you want to get into a comfortable position in your seat, I'm struck this morning by how often um, in my day-to-day of my week, I skip over times to breathe and just be still. So I'd like to just let us have a moment now to breathe and be still. God, we are made up of stories. We are formed by the stories we tell about ourselves, stories we tell about our community, about our past, about you. And we are constantly coming up against the stories that others tell about themselves, about their communities, about you. God, would you guide us as we both remember and look back and as we actively experience the present. In the work of creating our own memoirs, of seeing you across the pages of our story and seeing troubles and difficulties as well. God, I pray that we would never fall into the terrorizing application that you are using suffering to litmus test us, to teach us a lesson, or just out of sheer curiosity that you are a God that is far more good than that. Would you guide us as we trust our deepest intuitions, our gut-level longings for who you are, Would we cling to the most beautiful pictures of you that we can conjure up? And would this not feel like a betrayal? Would it not feel like some test? God, that we can critique things that we see in the Bible, that we see in religious tradition, and it's okay to do so. Would we feel at peace and at rest when we need to do that work? God, would you guide us in passing on a more beautiful, loving, and inclusive tradition to those around us? Just take a couple more minutes here just to breathe.
God, I thank you for your anchoring stillness, your presence in suffering, and your willingness to question along with us, to let us embrace doubt and not rush us to new conclusions if we don't need to be there yet. Thank you for the gift of community and that we do not do any of this work alone or in a vacuum. Thank you for the gift of being here today. Amen.